0: All right, let's so welcome to the Misfit Nation, Mr. Bruce Sackman, author of Behind the Murder Curtain. How are you? I'm terrific. How are you? Very good, Bruce. Uh, thanks for taking some of your time to come on the show and uh, tell us a little bit about your story here. And uh, of course, the book and your background. So, if you'd like to, if you would just tell us a little bit about how you got to the point where you can write this book and how you had that background of your story.
1: Sure. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I served as the special agent in charge of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General for the Northeast. So I was responsible for all major criminal investigations involving the VA hospital system from West Virginia to Maine. Wow. So the hospitals, the regional offices, the clinics, and I had five offices that reported into me in New York City. And I had this tremendous um, and interesting smorgasbord, you might say, of cases to pick and choose from involving hospitals. You know, there was, um, and this is not just for the VA, but I mean, all hospitals have this to some extent. You know, there was drug diversions, there was theft, there was bribery because contractors were trying to get into the VA and they felt the only way they could get in the VA was to bribe their way. Wow. <laughs> and um, so there was a whole host of crime, mostly white collar crime, until one day I got a phone call that really kind of changed my life. Um, I got a phone call from the chief of psychiatry at the Northport Long Island VA Medical Center. And she said, uh, Bruce, you know, you're not going to believe this, but there's a doctor working here, and there's a news story that he spent time in prison for poisoning his co-workers. What? And I looked at that was my... <laughs> and I, first of all, I looked at the calendar to see if this was April 1st, maybe you <laughs> me an April Fool's joke, you know? And then I said, is this for real? She says, yeah, yeah, it's for real. His name is Michael Swango, and he's been working here at the VA hospital in Northport, treating our nation's heroes and there's a new story that he spent time in prison for poisoning his coworkers. Wow. Wow. <laughs> All right, so you know what? I grabbed one of the agents of my office and I went down to see this guy and, and to meet him. And I met Dr. Michael Swango. And I'll tell you a little bit about him. He was a handsome, charming, ex-Marine doctor. I mean, if I didn't know better, I'd want to introduce him to my daughter. I mean, if she brought this guy home, I'd go, wow, (laughs) this is (laughs) terrific." But let me tell you a little bit about Michael Swango. When Michael Swango was in medical school, his fellow students referred to him as double O Swango, licensed to kill. Because it seemed like every time he visited patients, a number of them would expire unexpectedly. And nobody could really point to the fact that Swango may have been killing them, but they got very suspicious. So they went to the dean and they said, you know, Dean, something's up with this Michael Swango. I don't think he should be a doctor. And, S- and Michael Swango went in front of a board and by one vote, they decided to keep him as a doctor. Oh. So he stayed in medical school and he graduated medical school. And then he went to Ohio State University to do an internship. At Ohio State University, there was a a young girl, a gymnast, her name was Cynthia McGee, and she got hit in in a car accident by another student. And she was actually improving until she got a visit by Dr. Michael Swango. Well, the next thing you know, she dies unexpectedly. But Swango doesn't get charged with that murder. The student that hit her with his car, he gets charged with vehicular homicide but he didn't kill Cynthia McGee. Swango killed Cynthia McGee. Well, in Ohio State patients start dying unexpectedly, but they can't prove, they can't prove everything. These cases are very, very hard to prove. But they said, look, we're not keeping this guy Swango here anymore, so he actually leaves and he goes to his first love, which was really being an, an EMT because he loved the excitement of going to an accident and a code and all the gore and all the blood. And um, one day he brings in uh, some donuts for his co-workers. And that night they go home and they're all sick. And he's calling them up and he's saying, tell me all the symptoms, tell me everything that, 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 that's wrong with you. He was kind of reliving the experience of poisoning them, not just when he put the poison on the donuts, But to hear how they actually suffered. Well, these EMTs were not stupid. And about a week or two later, Swango comes in, this time with iced tea. He said, hey, I got iced tea for everybody. Oh, they said, oh, thanks a lot, Michael. But they didn't drink it. They had it tested. And it was loaded with arsenic. Wow. So they called (laughs) the police. And the police did an excellent job. And Michael Swango gets sentenced to three years in jail for poisoning his coworkers. Now, I didn't think in the United States of America, you could spend three years in prison for poisoning people and come out and be a physician again. But I was wrong because being a sociopath, Michael (laughs) Swango was very, very calm, cool, collected and clever. And what he did, he came out, he changed his name a little bit. He started forging all these documents showing that he was in prison only for six months as a result of the barroom brawl and that the governor restored his civil rights. And some hospitals were so desperate for physicians that they took him back, they took him in. Mm. And he went to a VA hospital on the West Coast and when everything's going fine. He meets a nurse, a VA nurse, and they get engaged, and everything's great, until the news story comes out that he spent time in prison for poisoning his coworkers. Well, that's not good for a marriage. No. So um, you know, they, they break up, and she gets very, very upset. She goes home to Mom. she says, "I really love this guy, Michael Swango, but I've been having headaches and all since all of this. I just can't take this anymore. So she goes to the park in Virginia, takes out a gun and blows her brains out. Well, you can't blame Swango for that, can you? Well, actually, you can. Because even though the body was cremated, we tested a lock of her hair. It was loaded with arsenic. Wow. Swango was even poisoning his own fiance. So to make a long story short, here I am with that story out (coughs) in Northport, Long Island. And I meet this guy and he looked like he came right off the golf course, aviator sunglasses, very cool and calm, giving me the same story, the same barroom brawl story, the whole thing, very nice and charming, until I asked him for permission to search his room and then his attitude changed dramatically and had a sleeve. And I called the Assistant U.S. Attorney. She said, well, Bruce, you don't have any evidence that he committed any crimes out on Long Island. Mm. So you don't have any probable cause for a search warrant. And the next thing you know, Dr. Michael Swango is gone. Leaves the United States. He goes to Zimbabwe, Africa. In Zimbabwe, Africa, he kills women and children and pregnant women. But he had to come back to the United States to renew his passport. And that's when we arrested him, but not for murder because we didn't have any evidence that he actually murdered anybody. So we arrested him for every federal agent's favorite crime which is lying to the government. (laughs) He lied to me and he lied on all his applications about the borrowing brawl. okay? So he pled guilty to that and he got three years in jail. And that gave us three years, a window of three years, to try to determine if Swango had murdered anyone at the Northport VA Medical Center. Now, I told you about all the cases that I had at the VA, but never a murder case. Right. Never did anything like this before. So my boss says, Hey, Bruce, you know, we're going to hook you up. Uh, with one of the world's great experts on this, Dr. Michael Bodden. I don't know if you have ever seen him on TV. I used to have a show called Autopsy. Oh yeah. Anytime there's a famous murder, he's like there. And I explained to him, he says, "Don't worry, Bruce. I'm going to teach you how to do this." And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to assemble a team of experts, and we're going to pull every medical record of every veteran who was at the Northport VA during the time Swango was there. And part of this team is we had a VA physician from Texas who was an expert in chart review. He could review the patient's charts and make a determination as to whether their deaths seemed suspicious based on all the underlying ailments they had. Was it suspicious that they expired when they did? Then we had Michael Bodden, of course, was the forensic toxicologist, uh, the forensic pathologist. And then we had a, a toxicologist Um, from uh, the largest private forensic lab in the country called National Medical Services. And we had this wonderful group of VA nurses that are cross-trained in forensics and they're known as forensic nurses. And they were absolutely phenomenal. They were absolutely great, okay? So the team made a determination. It looked like about five veterans expired unexpectedly. And when I say unexpectedly, let me sort of explain it to you this way. If you ever had a, uh, someone in your family that was in a hospital, that was in a near-death situation, you knew they were about to expire. The family knows, you know, the staff knows. But these people, no one expected them to expire. You know, natural death uh, is like if you had a, a, a fan, and you shut off the fan, and the blades gradually slow down and stop. But these people are like a light bulb. They were bright one minute and dark the next. And in fact, the families often would say, hey, look, you know what? Dad seems to be improving, so let's go on vacation, and then we'll come back and we'll see dad only to get a phone call from Dr. Michael Swango telling them that their father had expired. And the reason why he would do this, because this was his second bite of of excitement. The first excitement was actually murdering the veterans. The second excitement for him was calling up the family and letting the family know exactly what happened the last 20 minutes of dad's life in very excruciating circumstances and pain. Could you imagine that?
0: So he's like a... serial killer that you see on all these channel uh, ID investigation discovery shows all wrapped into one basically. He he was the highlight reel and the murderer at the
1: same time. You know, absolutely. And you have to remember that there have been medical serial killers throughout the world. And one of the big differences between medical serial killers and your we'll call them traditional serial killers (laughs) for lack of a better term, is that medical serial killers the average kills somewhere between 30 and 60 patients. You know why? Because nobody wants to believe that a medical professional who has taken an oath to save lives is intentionally murdering people. Look, I I worked at hospitals for many years. The last hospital I worked in, they were performing miracles, miracles, these doctors and nurses. So if you are hidden in a group of people so dedicated to saving lives, actually performing miracles, who's going to believe that somebody in that team is intentionally taking lives? And that's why medical serial killers get away with it for so long until they're actually caught, because no one wants to believe that they are intentionally murdering their patients. It's kind
0: of like we put them on a pedestal. We put them on this pedestal that they can't be touched or they're better than other one. And this happens.
1: So Michael Swango, it's time for him to get out of jail for lying to me. And he thinks he's going to hop on a plane and go back to Africa. Uh, Not so fast, Michael. Not so fast. Because unfortunately for him, at the same time, we were doing this investigation and made this determination that patients had, had died from him. We had, uh, the United States had signed an extradition treaty with the government of Zimbabwe. So when Michael Swango got out of jail, we said, look, Michael, if we go to trial, and even if we lose, we're just going to put you on a plane and drop you off on the tarmac in Zimbabwe, where there's an arrest warrant for you, charging you with the murder of women and children and pregnant women. Well, it didn't take him long to convince, <laughs> to be convinced that he should plead guilty. <laughs> and he did plead guilty. And when he got in front, you know, and uh, the sentencings are very, very dramatic because this is when the families get up and the families get to speak. And they talk about dad's military service, you know and how dad survived the war only to be killed in a VA hospital. Terrible, you know, absolutely terrible. And then Swango gets up and he stands up at an attention like an ex-marine. And the judge asks him, "Well, tell me what happened." And he says he used the paralytic to murder these patients. He admits it right, right there in court. So he gets sentenced to um, three consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. Now, in the federal system, there is no parole. So the judge said to him, "You know." Dr. Uh, Swango, right now, there is no parole in the federal system. If Congress should change the law and grant parole, your parole is denied in advance. So he wouldn't give them any opportunity to get out. Well, after that case, and, you know, once you're on on the job and you do something successful, well, now all of a sudden you're the big expert. (laughs) I had one case and now all of a sudden I'm the big expert. And the next thing you know, another VA hospital, there's a there's a nurse in Massachusetts, uh, her name was Kristen Gilbert. Kristen Gilbert, we suspect of killing about um, 30 veterans. Wow. Um, and um, that case actually went to trial. You now, it's, it's a fascinating story, very fascinating story because my vision of a serial killer had always been like a Charles Manson type, you know, some crazy looking guy with a swat sticker on his forehead or something. And here comes a typical soccer mom, you know, kind of attractive soccer mom. Hey Bruce, how you doing? Yeah, I'm taking my kids to the game. I'll talk to you when I come back, you know? And only to see that she had murdered, uh, a, and she was actually convicted at the trial uh, of murdering veterans with epinephrine. You know, epinephrine is adrenaline. Yeah give them that shot and she would speed up their hearts. And you know, and people often ask, um, what's the motivation of these people, all right? You know, what makes a medical serial killer be a medical serial killer? Well, it's not like one size fits all, but I could tell you there are one or two commonalities between many of them, not only here in the United States, but all over the world. And Kristen Gilbert is one that certainly fits this. We used to call them code junkies. They crave the excitement of a code. And if you know what a code is in the hospital, you know, somebody goes in a cardiac arrest, the bells and whistle goes off, the crash cart comes in. I mean, it's very, very exciting. And they used to love the excitement of the code. And they'd like to show off to the staff all their skills and all their ability to take charge. Even though they caused the code to begin with. All right. And um, doctors used to say, you know, if I ever coded, I would want Kristen Gilbert there. She's fantastic. She starts barking orders out to the young interns who were scared out of their mind. She's (laughs) terrific. But she actually caused the code. She actually caused the code. Now, her case, interestingly enough, her case was a death penalty case in a state that does not have the death penalty. So how how does that happen? That's because the crimes occurred at a VA institution, which is a federal institution, all right? So we were able to charge her under the federal law and under the federal law there's a death penalty. So we went to trial for six months, day in and day out, six months long. An incredible battle of experts and witnesses. And the way we found out about this case is a number of nurses uh, were very brave and they came forth and they said, you know, every time this nurse Gilbert is on duty, the death rate goes up. (laughs) Nurse Gilbert takes a week (laughs) off, the death rate goes down. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean she's a serial killer. I mean, maybe she has the most complex cases. Maybe she has the sickest patients. Maybe there's a logical reason for this, all right? So she goes to the management, and the management really poo-pooted. it. So sort did of a number of their coworkers. workers So out of frustration, they actually went to us, the inspector general. And that's what started this investigation. And we worked along with the Massachusetts State Police, who did a phenomenal job with us. And we went to trial, and we were in a courtroom day after day after day for six months. Finally, she was found guilty. And now came the second part, the second trial. The second trial is the death penalty phase. The same jury who decide that she was guilty now has to decide whether she should receive the death penalty or not, okay? and it was the government's job to prove or try to prove that she did deserve the death penalty and again that was a very very moving experience because the family members are there and the family members get up and they testify you know about dad's service about dad's time at the va it's very very moving um And the jury came back and they said, no death penalty, but she also got life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. And we were kind of happy, you know, um, because she was a mom, she had two young kids. We didn't really, if she was executed, she would have been the first woman to have been executed in the federal system since uh, Ethel Rosenberg with the atomic bomb spy, but it didn't happen. And we were kind of happy it didn't happen but you wouldn't know that when you read the newspaper accounts because they thought we were bloodthirsty Gestapo, you know, and we just wanted anger in the town square. And really, nothing could be further from the truth.
0: Nothing and the media takes off and runs with the, the headline they believe is going to sell papers and making you the bad guy or your team the bad guys in that situation is the best way for them to do that, even though she was obviously having an evil spell in her to do this and kill over 30 veterans of our country
1: right so the next thing now with two cases now i'm really an expert (laughs) now you're sought after two cases you're like a super expert (laughs) so now i'm really an expert okay and then we had other cases around the country you know the most recent case was a case in west virginia i don't know if you saw this a nurse uh named rita mays she killed uh 13 veterans that was at the west virginia va that's most recent, and cases have been like this all over the world. I actually worked with the German police on a case involving a nurse that killed over 100 patients. We actually think it's closer to 300, but we can't prove it, and uh, something very interesting in Germany, very interesting in Germany, because what we find with medical serial killers, um, and this was not so much in the, in the VA, but in general, we find that they will travel from one hospital to the next hospital to the next hospital so like like in ohio state even though they suspected swango you know they didn't tell the next hospital that they suspected swango they were just happy he's gone and there was a nurse nurse calling in new jersey and he went to two hospitals in pennsylvania and about four hospitals in new jersey And Hospital A never said anything to Hospital B, that never said anything to Hospital C. So that's why they're able to kill so many people and and get away with it. But in Germany, and I tell you, the German police are incredibly thorough, as you could imagine, they Mm -hmm. are incredibly thorough. They have actually charged, and this is the first time this has happened anywhere in the world that I'm aware of. They actually charged managers who suspected something in hospital A, but didn't say anything in hospital B, they actually charged them with the crime of aiding and abetting the murders. Now, what's going to happen? I don't know. They were charged about two years ago and these people all were suspended and a number of them actually came back to work in the hospital. So we're following this very closely and we're going to see what happens (laughs) in the courts in Germany. But this is the one and only time that I'm aware of that managers who suspected something and didn't do anything actually got charged. And I think I'm really hoping that they are found guilty because that's the kind of precedent we yes. need to set. If managers know that they're going to get charged for, for covering this thing up, then they're going to think twice about that. But look, let's face it, if, if you are the director of a hospital you don't want the word out that there's a serial killer in the hospital. You know, after Kristen Gilbert was convicted, all right, the nurses who brought the allegations forward to us, they went back to work. They were ostracized, not praised, ostracized by their coworkers who said to them, did you see all the bre- bad press you brought about this hospital? I mean, we're saving lives. We're spending... our uh, they were all day saving lives here, but now when people drive by the hospital, they go, that's where the serial killer works." And that's all your fault. Why did you have to say anything? You know, why, why, why couldn't you just keep your mouth shut about it? That's the thanks they got. And you know, there's, there's, a, there's, a famous, there's a famous case about nurse whistleblowers in Texas. These two nurses, they were like the entire compliance department of the hospital. And they went to the manager of the hospital, it's a town called Kermit, Texas, in the oil basin. And they said, uh, Mr. Director, we think this this doctor is very dangerous. So we think he's actually harming patients. And the manager said, "Um, Did you actually see him harm any patients? No. Um, Is your background so perfect? You know, the reason why I ask is because if we pursue this, then you're sort of like your background is under investigation. I mean, is all your licenses up to snuff? If we drug tested you, are you going to test positive for anything? I mean, I'm just asking, you know, before you pursue this thing. So, you know what, why don't you just go back to your office? You know how hard it is to find doctors in Kermit, Texas? Why? We have to go all the way to the Philippines to find doctors, (laughs) maybe even further. So just go back and So these two nurses say, well, what the hell are we gonna do now? We went to the management, the management approved it. So one nurse says, I have an idea. Let's send an anonymous letter to state officials telling them about this doctor. So they send the anonymous letter and the doctor gets wind of it boy is he pissed. So he calls one of his patients who happens to be the local sheriff. And he says, "Uh, Sheriff, I think these two nurses are intentionally trying to harm me, and I think they may have committed a crime. And the sheriff says, don't worry, doc, I'm on the case. So he gets a search warrant and he goes into their hospital computer and he finds out they're the authors of the letter and he has them indicted and arrested for misuse of official information, which is a Mm -hmm. felony in those parts. Goes to trial, the jury's out for about 20 minutes, they come back and they say, what are you kidding me? These nurses deserve a medal for what they did, not to be criminally prosecuted. Oh yeah, they won the case, they got their jobs back, they got money, but what kind of message? What kind of message does that send out to other nurses and other doctors there when they suspect something? You now, when I give these lectures all over the world, inevitably, some nurse or some doctor comes over to me and says, you know, there was this nurse, (laughs) there was this doctor, we should have said something, we really didn't. Now I'm so worried, I'm wondering, you know, if maybe we made a mistake, we really suspected something. It takes a lot of courage to come forward. And that's another reason why medical serial killers, not just in the VA, but throughout the whole world, get away with killing so many people. Definitely, and the whistle- When the
0: whistleblower is afraid for their entire life now, because like those two nurses there had almost everything taken away from them for doing the right thing. That's right. And the other ones up in Massachusetts, the same thing. They got blacklisted because they did the right thing where others closed batted eyes. I'm good. Nothing's happening here. I'm not seeing my patient go down like this. This is just a fun hospital. No, that's not how your life's supposed to be. It's in- and that's in any tech context to be an IG all cases when there's a whistleblower, all the arrows go right back at that whistleblower. And that's always the fear in every case.
1: That's right. But here you're blowing the whistle and not only are you gonna ruin somebody's career, but you're gonna put them in jail maybe for life. Yeah. And uh, that takes a lot of courage. But thank- thankfully throughout the world, nurses and doctors have come forth. They all haven't fared well though. Right. Haven't fared well, unfortunately. You know, and they're really heroes. You know, they're, they're, they are really heroes because without them, we would never know. I mean, how would I know? I wouldn't know about Kristen Gilbert unless these nurses called us and, and told us. Right. Because the manager's not going to call us and tell us. <laughs> you he didn't want the highlight. we move on <laughs> to the next place. Right. You know, so, so because of all these cases and my work throughout the world, um, that's what's inspired me to write this book. You know, here it is. It's... Um, behind the murder curtain, and you could pick it up, you could download it. It's inexpensive, it's a quick read, but it really kind of opens up your eyes to what's been going on throughout the United States, throughout the VA, and throughout the world. One of the good things to come about, the Swango case, I must say, one of the good things is that the world of medical credentialing has improved dramatically. So, Now, before a nurse or a doctor gets hired, usually, there's a very thorough background investigation and they double and triple check all their licenses and credentials and everything because nobody wants another Right. What happens when you have a pandemic? What happens when there are hundreds of people in the emergency room and you don't have enough staff? What happens when... You invite patients in, but the family can't come in. So there's nobody, the patient is by him or herself, all right, because there's a pandemic. What happens when you have all to bring in all these traveling nurses from all around the world to help out because you're so inundated? Well, you don't really have the time to do all those proper credentialings as you should. You kind of rely on other services to do it. Again, in Germany, there was a doctor that was recently uh, charged with murdering two COVID patients. And um, I have a feeling we, we may see some more as, as this time goes on. That was during a question the- I was gonna ask you, do you think? Ongoing, I know of number of them ongoing currently throughout the United States.
0: That's, that was one of the questions I was gonna ask you. Do you think during this time, it's gonna be, those numbers are all gonna rise due to like you said, not betting people correctly and also the rush to get those beds open again in the hospitals.
1: Well, look, look at it this way you know, and this is what I tell you. look, if you're so inclined to find, a provi- uh, if, to find a profession and a location where it's easy to commit murder, let's think about this for a minute. Okay? So, what profession do we know has the power of life and death over someone? Certainly the medical profession does, all right? What about working uh, where the group of people, your coworkers, all take an oath to protect and serve and save lives, all right? And that's why some serial killers have masqueraded themselves as police officers. But what other profession do we know takes that Hippocratic oath or that Florence Nightingale oath how about working in a profession where the victim and the family trust you implicitly? Listen to that nurse, sweetheart. Listen to that doctor. He has your best interest in mind. Of course they do 99.9% of the time. That's a very logical thing to say. And what about this? What about working in a location where the strong and assertive all of a sudden become the meek and mild? I mean, you're hurting and you're by yourself. So you don't ask questions. You know, you ever see this really big construction worker terrified of this little nurse coming over with a big needle? I mean, they don't ask questions, they are hurting. So they just kind of accept the treatment. Then how about working where there's a real shortage of people, you know, like out there in Texas where they couldn't find doctors and they couldn't find nurses or during a pandemic where we have to overlook some past indiscretions just to fill that. Mm And how about working in a place where death is a common everyday occurrence? Somebody dies in a hospital, is that an issue? Somebody dies in a nursing home, is that an issue? No, it's not questioned. How about working in a place where you work alone at night? Maybe at like three o'clock in the morning in a hospital ward, it's just you and maybe a nurse's aide and you take that curtain and put that curtain around you and the patient. Nobody's going to really see what's going on. And With this HIPAA law, you know, we can't even have cameras in half the places. So um, we don't really know what's going on, right? Um, How about working in an environment that the police are unfamiliar with and don't even wanna come in? look, Most cops don't become cops because they're good in chemistry and biology, okay? So it's very easy to be intimidated by the science and by the law, because well, you know this HIPAA law, what documents can I get? What documents can I get? Do I need a subpoena? Do I need a court order? Oh, this is so confusing. And then what happens is that many times the management will do their own internal investigation. And they'll say, and then the police will show up and they'll say something like this. Um, well, thank you very much, officer, for your concerns. Um, you know, we were concerned too. So we appointed a board of our very best nurses and physicians, and they looked into these cases. Of course, they were all my employees. And they came out with the determination that all the patients died as a direct result of their natural disease processes. Now, if you want to challenge that, I mean, go right ahead. But here's a report, this thick, that details all the work we did. Now, how many cops are going to just say thank you? and leave, how many cops even have the resources to challenge that? Right. You know, I was in the federal government, we had the resources. I mean, we just keep writing checks for trillions of dollars. That will <laughs> make a difference to us. I know. <laughs> but the local police, I mean, they don't have that. They didn't have those kind of resources. You know, in the Swango case, we spent close to a million dollars on lab fees alone. Wow. <laughs> how many people could do that? How many departments can do that? There's not many local police departments can do that. (laughs) Right. You know, so um, that's another reason why medical serial killers get away with so many murders. The number one, by the way, undefeated, undisputed champion of medical serial killers is Dr. Harold Shipman in England. He killed about 300 patients. Wow. (laughs) And just to show you, how difficult these cases are to make. Harold Shipman is the one and only physician to be successfully criminally prosecuted for killing his patients in the history of the United Kingdom, going back to the Norman Conquest. All right. So that just goes to show you how difficult these cases are to make. All right. So incredible. And, and and this is what I, I talk about in the book and in the book I also list red flags you know how does how to spot these people how to investigate these things and um, before it gets way out of hand but they almost always do get way out of
0: hand well definitely <laughs> especially when the bodies start piling up and it's, it's already out of hand after one goes down but when they start to go to 30 and 300 like in in England that's, that's a that's a whole cemetery in some cities, so that's bad.
1: Absolutely.
0: Well, Bruce, this has been great chatting with you and learning about your story, where you, where you got your background from to become this expert in these investigations. The pseudo, the number one expert after two, two in the investigations <laughs> and sought after around the world. And uh, thanks for sharing parts of uh, Behind the Murder Curtain with us so uh, listeners can get out there and then buy your book and learn more about it themselves. Thank you very much for having me. All right. You have a good night. All right. You too.